Ask anyone with Lyme. One of the worst parts of the disease is mental fatigue, stress, and depression, cognitive issues, and that is if you get a diagnosis. For many people with Lyme, the change in brain function comes on without an explanation, without knowing why you feel so terrible. On this Looking at Lyme podcast, we're going to get into your head. Well, I should say into the head of a leading expert in the field of Lyme and the effects on our brain. When I first contracted Lyme disease, the mental stress was awful. I couldn't concentrate at work or remember simple things like putting my car in park. It was almost too much to bear. And I really didn't understand what was going on. Dr. Leo Shea understands it all too well. He is a psychologist and his practice focuses on traumatic brain injury and tick-borne illnesses. He was also the president of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Educational Foundation. I'm so thrilled he took the time to speak with me. Hello, Dr. Shea. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Sure, sure. Very happy to. So we're going to talk about neurological Lyme. How does Lyme disease affect the brain? Well, that's a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question because it certainly does affect the brain. Um, obviously, it depends upon the, the duration of the Lyme as to how much effect it has on the brain. It certainly affects attention, concentration, sustained, which is sustained attention. It affects um, the speed of processing. Um, as most neurological disorders affect speed of processing, but certainly Lyme does. And it's one of the uh, key uh, components of, of Lyme is seeing that the speed of processing has slowed down. That also then affects every other kind of timed test or timed function that a person would go through. So if an individual um, is doing a reading test or in school, or if an individual has a certain uh, amount of time in order to complete a project at work, the slow speed of processing is going to limit that and make the person appear to be less effective. Also, that you're going to find that there are memory components that are involved, short-term memory and retrieval memory both auditory and visual, and then executive functions and higher-level reasoning, uh, mental shifting, and multitasking are all components that get affected by that. I saw your presentation at ILADS conference on the weekend, and one of the ah. quotes that really stuck out for me was you said, it's not in your head, it's in your brain. It's not a mental yeah. health disorder, it's an organic disorder, and I think that, that's that refreshing correct. for people to know, so I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. Sure. Uh, what happens in, in, uh, with Lyme disease, and it happens with other diseases that are rather current in the world of medicine, um, and I say current within the last 20 years or so, um, individuals um, who are doing research uh, are limited in the amount of research they can get done. And so that research is not always available for clinicians who are in practice. And so they have to go by um, particular guidelines, which may be limiting. And therefore, they, while they cannot understand what the particular disease is like or the symptoms could mask so many other things, they uh, at times will default that this must be a mental health disorder. 
Um, it must be anxiety. It must be depression. It must be bipolar. One of those things, a dissociative disorder. Um, and, and people become very frustrated by that because they know that there is something which is physically happening to them. But the medical world is not um, focused on that. It's focused more on the mental health process. And so there is a loss of, of um, belief in the medical system, which is unfortunate, uh, until an individual finally meets up with a uh, Lyme literate physician who understands the nature of the disease and then can tell them that it's not in their head, it's in their brain. Now, obviously, um, when Lyme disease gets into the brain, it becomes neuroborreliosis. It does not always get to the brain. It's, it depends upon the duration and whether one is properly medicated to prevent that. But when it does get to the brain, you will see that many of these cognitive um, uh, problems that I've mentioned are primary, and it reduces the person's ability to function, not only in their general daily life, but certainly in their professional or academic life. Can you tell us a little bit about neuro neuropsychological evaluation and what that is? Sure. Um, when when an individual has um, a suspected neurological disorder, um, one one will always ask for, or one should ask for, a neuropsychological evaluation, which basically takes into effect how the brain behaves as a result of a physical onset. And um, that physical onset, which has diminished the function of the physical body and the central nervous system, which is mainly the spinal cord and the brain, um, one wants to know, well, when that happens, what does that what does that mean for a person's cognitive functioning? That's the way they think. What does it mean for a person's emotional functioning, how they, how they feel, and what does that mean for their behavioral function, how they act as a result of that? Uh, any one of those three things can be a, a primary and initiate an investigation into a neuropsychological evaluation. So someone may have a change in behavior, and that's noticed, and a person then says, well, you know, your behavior is quite different. What's, what's uh, motivating that? Or your emotion now is quite different. You're more labile or you're more rigid. Um, what, what has happened to you? Or, you know, I see that you're not being able to process things quickly or your reading is slow. see this in school. Um, and, and also at work, you're not able to complete your work in time. That's more of a cognitive process. So it could be any one of the of those three initially, but then all three become involved. And how is that different from other diagnostic tools such as MRIs? Okay. Well, an MRI is a, um, a medical instrument which evaluates the way the brain functions or the body functions, depending upon what it's evaluating. Uh, there are a number of different neuroimaging processes the MRI is one, a CAT scan is another, the SPEC scan is another, the PET scan, uh, EEG. There are um, a number of them that can look at uh, the way the body is functioning and the brain is functioning. The neuropsychology is one that um, looks at areas of the brain in hopes that what they're looking at will replicate the same areas that the um, MRI or the CAT scan or the neuroimaging shows up. So you should, you, if you're going to do 
a neuroimaging of the brain as a result of Lyme disease. That's most often used with a SPEC scan. Uh, most of the research has been used as a SPEC scan. You, whatever you find on the SPEC scan should mirror the areas in the brain which the neuropsychologists also find as areas of weakness in the functioning. So um, if one has a, a problem with um, multitasking and executive functions, one would look towards the frontal lobe as to having some kind of um, hyperperfusion or some detriment in that area. The brain function and neuropsychology should mirror each other. I heard you refer to psychoeducation and wondering why is that important for people like family members, teachers, and employers? Sure. Um, what happens with um, any kind of illness, and especially with Lyme, because it's, it's a, an illness that is uh, rather controversial, is that individuals need to understand, one, the nature of the disease, and two, how that disease is going to impact the patient and also all of the world in which the patient functions, and that could be school, it could be their professional life, but more often than not, it's within the area of the family. And things happen within a family in which people either believe that the person is going through all these things or they discount them. No, you're much better than you think you are. Uh, everybody has these problems. Or, oh, my goodness, this is much more acute than we thought and more severe and more chronic, and then we're going to pay attention to the one person in the family to the detriment of all the others. So this often causes problems with young siblings in which one sibling becomes ill and the other siblings feel that they have been marginalized because all the attention is being focused on the sick patient. And that, that can cause significant problems, people going off and doing untoward things to satisfy the uh, needs that they have that they're not getting at home. So by psychoeducation, what you do is you bring in all the players, the family, or if it's the school, you go to the school and work with the, the team that is overseeing the student. It could be um, the counselors, it could be um, the teachers, and you try to provide an education for them by helping them understand where this person is presently, what they're going to see in their functioning, and how they can help them in the process. What kind of accommodations can they make? Same thing is true at work. Um, a person may be able to continue to go to work but may need accommodations in order to do the work, may need less, less projects given to them uh, and greater time in order to complete the projects. Or they may not be able to go to work, and then, of course, that's, that comes under the area of disability. But psychoeducation is important so that everybody has an understanding of what this patient is going through and how, what their role is in supporting the patient. That's wonderful. I think there's definitely a lot of work to be done in that field what might mm -hmm. some of the ways? What might be some of the ways that employers or teachers would accommodate someone who is experiencing a decline in their brain function, hopefully tempo temporarily? Yeah, I mean we all hope that it's temporary, of course. Um, so let's take a school situation. There, there are some that are rather rather interesting. Uh, say a student is in all honors classes, and they are an exceptionally good student. Um, and now they have Lyme disease and it has affected them. 
One of the things that can be very disheartening is that the uh, administration will say to the student, well, you can't keep up with the advanced placement classes or the honors classes, so we're going to move you back to regular classes. Now, this has no incentive for the student because they are much smarter generally than those people in, in the regular classes. They are not incentivized to study the way they were before. So one of the things that we attempt to do is to say, let's leave them in those classes. They still have the mental acuity to do these things, but they can't do it at the same rate. They can't. Maybe you need to reduce back the number of projects, but still make them complex projects, but give them more time. Um, and if you have an understanding faculty, they will recognize that it's better to do that and also help the student body understand this, because you know, in those kinds of classes, there are a limited number of students generally. And so it's easy to give that group of students the psychoeducation on how the student is, is functioning and why he needs to stay or she needs to stay within the honors classes and needs support from them as well as from the teacher. And that's a very helpful thing. Otherwise, the student becomes very depressed. They then become disincentivized to study, and that's not what you want to do. Um, on the other hand, you may have students who are having, um, maybe they're not in um, advanced classes, they're in regular classes, and they're doing fairly well, but suddenly they start moving back, and you find that teachers may see them as having some kind of behavioral problem, and maybe they remand them to a behavioral class where they're nothing like the students in that behavioral class, and then they become disincentivized. Same thing true in cognition. There are sometimes people say, well, let's go into a learning specialty class because the student's not learning as well. That's not the thing to do. It's to try to find out how you can support the student and maintain them in the same classes. Now, in work, uh, what happens is that individuals are able to see that the person is not functioning at the level they were previously, and the question is why. Uh, again, if, if you have an, an, open, uh, an open management system, they can ask uh, the neuropsychologist to come in, explain to the various supervisors and peers uh, what Lyme disease is like and how it's impacting this individual and the support systems that would be necessary to help them. Human resource departments can help with that. Um, and, and some of the, the ways that are happened, um, I can think of an individual who was a, a senior partner in a, an accounting firm. He couldn't keep up with the same pace. So what the firm did was get him an additional assistant to help him with the process and do the research. So it didn't minimize him in the eyes of the other people. It aided him in being able to maintain his position. And um, psychologically, he felt um, better about himself. Otherwise, he, he felt quite depressed that he wasn't being able to keep up. And in a sense, he recognized he was not able to keep up, but his work product still was able to be excellent because he had this additional support. How might pediatric and adolescent patients differ from adults in the presentation of their symptoms? Well, um, what you will find is more behavioral and emotional components on the pediatric patients uh, because they see themselves more often as being judged by peers and by the school system in which they are, are matriculating. 
So the pediatric patients and the adolescent patients have a much greater problem with social integration um, and and their behaviors then can end up in being being in more de- detrimental when you find that individuals see themselves as being marginalized in pediatric patients there is a tendency to move towards um, the ki- kinds of addictive processes that can be considerably disruptive to their life and to their future, such as involving themselves in drugs or alcohol or truancy or promiscuity. It's because they feel so marginalized from their peers that they seek out other avenues to try to enhance their self-belief and self-value. And that becomes a, a really downward process. How might the limbic system be affected by Lyme disease? Well, the limbic system is, is the emotional component. It comes from the, um, the limbic system basically runs, if you can think of it, from like a horseshoe running from one ear to the other around your frontal lobe, uh, and it's called the Papez circuit. And the uh, Mexican researcher um, who evaluated that long ago, um, the limbic system is the system that basically controls the emotional components of the brain. Now, I understand you're the president of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Education Foundation. Uh, can you just tell... I was. Oh, I, I was. Oh, I past. Okay. Okay. And so that program, though, is a good place for physicians to go to seek additional information and training? Yes. That, that program is specifically designed, uh, we worked on that for quite a while, um, in a physician training program. What we want to do is this will lead to a certification program, which we are working on now. Um, what happens is uh, a physician who wants to know more about Lyme will come to a conference. Um, he will attend or she will attend the fundamentals program, which is one day. And then from that, they will have to pass an examination. Uh, and if they pass the examination at the end of that day, they are then put on a list for training opportunities, and those training opportunities are usually uh, two weeks uh, being mentored by a seasoned uh, Lyme professional, a, a doctor who's at least had a minimum of five years of experience in Lyme. Most often they're people with 10, 15, 20 years of experience, um, but the minimum person who can, who can apply for mentorship has to have five years and then has to be reviewed as to their publications and their practice, et cetera, before they're allowed to be a mentor. Now, the person who wants this additional information goes and meets with a mentor for two weeks and participates in their practice. And then after that, um, when they return back to their home environment, they follow up with their mentor over, over a year as to any problems that they're encountering with patients or questions that they may have. Um, and, and so we're trying to train more and more physicians we're presently trying to encourage more physicians of color um, who treat uh, patients of color to understand that um, there is a, a difference in the way one evaluates skin tone, et cetera, with these erythema migraine rashes. They're certainly, uh, they're certainly quite um, um, aware that they can see them on Caucasian skin, but in some other colors of skin, sometimes it's muted and it may not be seen as a as a erythema migraine rash to the to the uninitiated eye. 
That is such important work. Is there enough training and resources available for physicians? Oh, um, it's, when you say physicians, I presume you mean those who, who wish to specialize in Lyme or tick-borne diseases? Yeah, and even the frontline workers who are going to see it and able to treat it immediately while it's an acute stage. Well, um, I think that there is enough knowledge among those people who consistently treat Lyme patients or tick-borne disease patients. Those who who do not treat it on a consistent basis um, certainly either have to get a lot more training or um, they have to desist from from evaluating it and send it to someone who is a specialist in it. Um, there can be a, there's a need for a lot more training, certainly, and and God knows there's a need for enormous amounts of research into this, so that we get a better understanding of of not only Lyme but all the other tick-borne illnesses. And there's there is not the money available for that at all. Absolutely, I've been interviewing a few of those scientists, and I hope that we'll have more of them in the future. Sure. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing all of your knowledge and expertise with us. And I think the preceptorship uh, program is is a great way for physicians to get more training, too. Absolutely. And we look forward to having them. Thank you. Thank you so much. so much, Dr. Shea, for a very informative interview. My key takeaway is that Lyme is an organic disorder, and it's not a mental health disorder, and people can get better with treatment. It is also helpful to know that ILAD Educational Foundation trains physicians, and Can Lyme has grants available for Canadian doctors who would like that training. So in the meantime, everyone, have fun out there and stay safe in the outdoors. 